God, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for letting us be here. I thank you for your goodness to us. You are our living hope. And even this morning as we'll study in your word that your son Jesus is the living stone, the, the one who's alive and the one who is living. And now uh, to be uh, living stones as well in this new temple that you're building in the body of Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll jump in there in a, in a moment and read that passage together. But before I do, let me just describe kind of a typical week for me, at least typical as a pastor can have. On, on Tuesdays is typically when I do most of my sermon study. Uh, that's I've read through 1 Peter multiple times, but... On that day of the week, I'll take and I'll type out all the verses that I hope to preach through that Sunday morning, and I'll compare those verses across multiple translations. You have many of them in your laps. I do all the word studies and all the connective phrases, all the cross-references, everything that goes into a deep dive into the study of the text. After I've kind of done that and sort of formulated my ideas of what this text means, then I will read as many commentaries as I can read uh, to get an understanding of that passage. And different authors will emphasize different things. Sometimes they agree, sometimes they don't. Uh, but they'll all point to something in the passage, some biblical theology about what does this passage mean. Now, interspersed in all of that time, I'll often go off into a room and I'll spend time in prayer. And I'll just say, God, you wrote this. Help me to understand, really, help me to understand what this means. I want to know so that it affects me, and then I can uh, teach others. That's on Tuesday. I usually go home Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening, with this wealth of jumbled up information in my brain. And Wednesday morning, I come back. And the first thing I do is I'll go back in, in prayer and I'll say, all right, God, uh, help bring this all together for me. Help me to understand this as a whole. And how do, you, how do you want me to present this? Now, I tell you all that to say uh, there are times when I leave on Tuesdays and I have a pretty good idea about how it all kind of fits together. And there are other times when I leave on Tuesdays and I don't have any idea yet how this all fits together. And yet God has been faithful to me for now 16 years. Every Wednesday morning, it's like he, he helps make the light bulb go off. And, and it makes sense. This week, when I left on Tuesday, it was one of those Tuesdays and I left and it was just all a jumbled up mess. And in fact, Wednesday morning when I got up, uh, before I left, I even told a couple of people, I told my wife, I told one of my friends, pray for me because it's just not there yet. I, I'm, just, I'm struggling to see this. And God in his faithful providence sent me an email Wednesday morning. Well, he didn't actually directly send me an email. But I got an email Wednesday morning uh, from a faithful ministry and contained in that email were these two words, eternity amnesiac. 
And I read that, and it was like God was saying, this is what I want you to do. This is how this passage fits together. Eternity amnesiacs. And so I prayed, I went and sat down, started typing, and and it, it just, it came. So I hope that it makes sense to you. Uh, like it made sense to me uh, whenever it all started to come together. So I titled this message, Eternity Amnesiacs, all right? And so let's see if we can work through this together. First of all, if, you're, if you don't know what an amnesiac is, uh, it is a person who is experiencing a partial or total loss of memory, all right? So amnesia is the disease, amnesiac is the person, okay? So and amnesiac is a person who forgets things. And when it comes to our spiritual walk, I think Peter in this passage is telling us one of the worst things we can forget is our eternity. One of the worst things that we can forget is our eternity. And we can become so focused on the here and now that we cannot see beyond the immediate circumstances. And and the things that we're going through right now become so all-consuming, all-encompassing, so monumental that the reality of the bigger picture that's playing out is really all but forgotten. And when a person hits that point, he or she is tempted to go in one of two ways. If your world is consumed by everything that's happening right now, one of the first options is just to completely withdraw from that. I'm just going to go into isolation. I'm going to go into hiding. I'm just going to avoid the problem altogether. That's one temptation. The other temptation is to employ worldly means to attack, destroy, take out the enemy that we perceive. All right, I'll give you an example in a moment. But neither of those approaches is biblical. Peter here is going to offer us a third way. And Peter's going to come along and he's going to tell us, don't be an eternity amnesiac. Your eternity has something to say about your present. Don't forget about the sovereign and supernatural plan of God that's at work here, okay? So Peter's going to help us with. Now, if you were here last week, you know that I told you, Peter's writing this letter to people who are on the run. They're being persecuted. They stood up for their faith. They professed a love for Jesus Christ. Therefore, their neck is on the chopping block, and they are running. They're paying the price in their culture for being a Christian. They're being hunted down, arrested, jailed, sometimes murdered for their faith. And so Peter's writing this letter of encouragement, and he wants them to pass it around in this region uh, to build them up in their faith, to encourage them to stay strong. And if you were here last week, Peter is starting to get into the section now where he's telling these people, I want you to be holy. This is God saying, I want you to be holy, for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. Peter also knows that as soon as they start to do that, they are going to face the fierce attack of their culture. Because when you are holy, like God is holy, you are going to stand out 
in a corrupt and sinful culture. And that culture is not going to appreciate your holy living. That culture is going to do whatever it can to suppress or oppress your faith because of a guilt that they're feeling because of the holiness in which they see in you. Let me give you an example uh, from our modern culture uh, so you can see this very contemporary thing uh, that's happening. As you know, the LGBTQ Revolution is in in full swing. Uh, If you're not aware of this, you've been living under a rock for a while. Uh, But in 2015, uh, our Supreme Court legalized what's called same-sex marriage. It was a a movement that had been gaining momentum for many decades. Uh, Just last week, uh, the United States House of Representatives passed what's called the Equality Act, a a bill that's uh, designed to expand on the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but is to give more protections uh, for those who identify as LGBTQ, uh, protections in the workplace, in schools, sports, public accommodations, so on and so forth. And, And the act strips away virtually every religious freedom exemption uh, that you can imagine, which is forcing even Christian schools. Our school is having to grapple with this. A church or churches are having to grapple with the idea of what if we are forced to employ people uh, who stand in direct opposition to our statement of faith. If you follow Senate confirmation uh, hearings, you'll know that just last week, uh, the first openly transgender uh, woman had a, a hearing uh, to be the assistant health secretary. And, and the press is uh, taking one senator, uh, raking him uh, over the coals, really taking his task over questions uh, that he asks this individual about biological sex and, and what that means for minors who, who think themselves to be something other uh, than sex assigned at birth. Now, as Christians, we know that the Bible uh, is abundantly clear when it talks about these issues, and for centuries, uh, the Christian church has rightly understood that God created men and women uh, in his image. It was a gift to them, their masculinity, their femininity. That was a gift of God. And we know that it was for human flourishing that God designed marriage to be between one biological male and one biological female for life. And it was for human flourishing, uh, that God instructed that sex occur only in the bounds of biblical marriage between a married man and woman. God didn't do that because he's withholding something from us. Uh, He gave that to us uh, for our good, and he designed it for our good. But rest assured, if you speak any of that type of truth in culture today, you will face the immediate and fiery persecution of those who refuse to obey the words of Scripture. Now, to to be clear, I'm not talking about being mean to people. I'm not talking about marginalizing people who struggle uh, with a particular sin in their life. All I'm saying is you can't even state this is right and this is wrong without facing the firing squad of public opinion uh, in your life. And you better be prepared for that. You better be ready for that. 
Because it would be easy to go in one of two directions. It would be easy for us to say, all right, option number one, then we're just going to cloister ourselves and we'll just take this little group and we'll just go move somewhere and we'll just all hang together and just be us, our own little commune, and we won't have to worry about that. That, that is one temptation. I don't think that's the biblical answer. The other temptation is, well then, we will just go full bore on the attack. And we will use every political means we have. We will use every cultural means we have. We will use every bullying means that we have in order to get what we want. Shoot, we'll even charge the United States Capitol if we have to. It's another option. I don't think that's the biblical answer. So what is the answer? Peter writes... And Peter writes this little passage to help us avoid eternity amnesia. Because when you look there and you focus on what's there and what's true and what's right and what our eternal purpose is, then we can face spiritual persecution in a way that brings God glory. All right, so I want you to follow along as I read our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4, down to verse 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, Peter, teach us. How does this work in real life? Well, Peter starts off in verse 4, and he says, As you come to him, that little phrase is written in what we call the continual sense. He's not talking about coming to Jesus for initial salvation. He's talking there about coming to Jesus as a regular habit, okay? It's this constant communion, this intimate fellowship uh, that believers have with their Lord. And Peter says, as you come to him, know that you are coming to the living stone. Now, that's a little odd because the stones that I know, this, the stones that are out in, in my driveway, uh, don't live. They're hard. They're dead. They're lifeless. But this stone 
is talking about Jesus. And Peter is going to start bringing in some Old Testament verses and applying them to none other than Jesus. Look down again at verse 6. Verse 6 is a quotation back from Isaiah 28, verse 16, where Isaiah said, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. The first covenant of God was laid down on Mount Sinai when God delivered the law. The new covenant of God was laid down in Jerusalem where Jesus suffered, died, and he rose again. And it was that resurrection, that life of Christ, that allows us to attach that word living to the idea of the stone so that we say Jesus is the living stone. He didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later. Jesus took that idea of, of the stone and he, he had even applied that already uh, to himself uh, back in an interaction he had with the scribes. In Luke chapter 20, it says, Jesus looked directly at them, the scribes, and he said, what then is that that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's the same verse. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Jesus was saying, I'm the living stone. I'm the one that was predicted way back there. But look what Peter says again about this living stone in in verse 4. He says, this living stone is rejected by men, but in the sight of God is chosen and precious. Jesus was rejected by men. He He was hated by men, despised by men. But in God's sight, Jesus was chosen. He was loved. He was the elect one in whom God delighted. This sentence is contrasting for us the world's estimate of Christ versus God's estimate of Christ And Peter here is warning us that if you dare take God's assessment of Christ, you too will be opposed by men. Men will hate you as much as they hated Jesus. The world hated Christ. Christ said, look, if you adopt my name, if you call yourself Christian, then know the world is going to hate you. I don't know where in the world Christians ever got the idea that when they came to Christ, that somehow their life would be easy. That somehow life would be all brownies and butterflies and rainbows and fairies. I don't know where they got that idea. You need to take that idea and crumple it up and throw it in the trash can. Okay? Because Jesus says, when you signed on to follow me, You signed up for the hatred of the world. That's why you better count the cost, he said. Count the cost. Make sure you want this because the world's coming for you like it came for me. For those of you that are college students, get ready for this. Especially if you are in a a public institution, you will have the coercive forces of Powerful professors coming at your Christian faith. They will sometimes call you out. 
They will allow other students to poke fun at you. They will dock your grades. You don't believe that can happen? Happened to me. If you're an adult in this room and you dare to speak out about what you believe about boys sharing locker rooms with girls or refusing to celebrate someone's coming out or if you would dare to suggest that abortion is evil like we talked about earlier, get ready, you're going to get attacked. You don't believe me? I'll introduce you to some folks in our church that have faced that very thing. I don't say that to scare you, but I say that in the spirit of Peter to warn you and to prepare you, the Christian walk is not for the faint of heart. The Christian walk is hard. Are you up for the challenge? Are you willing to walk this path of suffering? If you are, then verse 5 says that you too are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. You too. Jesus becomes a cornerstone. He's like there and everything is lined off of him. You are like a living stone and you're formed and you're stacked and you're put together with other Christians to form this new temple. Okay, in the, in the old times, God used to dwell in the physical tabernacle and then in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, God takes up his residence in the hearts of his people. You are the temple of God. In Ephesians 2, it says it like this. You then are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you are a believer, you have direct access to God now. He lives in your heart. You are the temple And you now live your life to offer spiritual sacrifices. And what does that mean? What is a spiritual sacrifice? Well, it means lots of things, but it could mean using your gifts to serve the church. It could mean uh, offering financially uh, in, in service to him. It could mean singing his praise. It could mean serving and loving other people. Those are all spiritual sacrifices. We don't come into church carrying goats and lambs anymore. And slaughter them in, in their blood brought. Instead, we lay ourselves down. We are the sacrifice. Our lives are the sacrifice. That's what it means that we are the temple of Christ. And here is the part I, I think that got me most excited as I was thinking about this passage and, and Peter trying to erase eternity amnesia from us, okay? Look at the end of verse 6. In the beginning of verse 7, he gives us this wonderful reminder. Look what he says, end of verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a a cornerstone chosen and precious. Remember, that's Jesus, and watch this. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. Now, pause right there for a moment. If you make a stand for Jesus today and you say, 
the Bible says this is right and this is wrong. Will you be put to shame? Yeah, duh. The world's going to put you to shame. They're going to jump all over you. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to call you out. You're old-fashioned. You need to get on the right side of history, my friend. You're going to have so many phobias attached to you, you won't know what hit you. But will you ultimately be put to shame? This is where Peter, is, I think, is looking and saying, don't become an eternity amnesiac. Don't forget that at the end of time, you ultimately will not be put to shame. The honor is yours. And just like Christ was honored by the Father at the resurrection, if you trust in him, you too will be honored, even though today you're suffering. Get your eyes off your present circumstance. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it hurts. Nobody wants to be attacked. But lift your eyes up and look at eternity. You are living for something greater than this. You are living for the honor that God is going to bestow on you. Don't be an eternity amnesiac. Don't give up. Verse 7. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Jesus trips up a lot of people. The truth of Jesus is an offense to many people. It goes against the grain of natural, unredeemed humanity. And for many, when they hear the truth about Jesus, there is a willful and hate-filled rejection of that truth and the person of Jesus Christ. Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And he throws in this little provocative phrase there, as they were destined to do. And theologians argue uh, over what the end of that verse means and whether or not Peter uh, meant that unbelievers are destined to doom because of their disobedience or destined to stumble uh, because of their disobedience. But, But the main point of what Peter is trying to drive at is this. Even the disobedience of sinful unbelievers in their persecution of you is not outside the sovereign knowledge and control of God. That is a relief to my soul. That even the disobedience of sinful unbelievers in their persecution of you is not outside the sovereign knowledge or control of God. It is not as though God is sitting up there going, oh my goodness, they're persecuting my children, what am I going to do? No. Hostile unbelief should not terrify Christians whom 
whom against it's directed because God the Father holds all of that in his control and he will bring it to an end when he deems best. Consider the greatest atrocity ever against humanity. The greatest atrocity ever was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself. And what did Peter have to say about that in his famous Acts 2 sermon. Well, there he said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Sinful men, rebellious men were responsible before God, and yet in the sovereign counsels of God, even that great and awful atrocity was used by God for his glory and for your good. And so, when that neighbor of yours attacks you because of your biblical stance, when that professor comes at you because of your commitment to biblical truth, when that coworker berates you for your fidelity with Christ, remember, God is not surprised by that, and God is in control even of their hostility. They can only go as far as God allows them to go. That should make you fearless. What are they going to do to you except that God controls? So what are we to remember about our eternity? Well, look look at verse 9. Peter says, here's what you need to remember. You're a chosen race. This isn't a race based on your skin color. This isn't a race based on your nationality or your ethnicity. You are a new race. And God is your father. You are a royal priesthood. And as we said, uh, Priests get to come before God and and they get to have this unbelievable personal relationship with God and they can intercede on behalf of other people to God. What a privilege. You're a royal priest. He says, you are a holy nation. You're part of a new nation. Your identity is not based on whether or not you're from the United States or Mexico or Canada or China. Your identity is based on the fact that you are part of a new nation, the nation of God, a new citizenship. And that nation, he says, is holy. It's following in the footsteps of Jesus, like Jesus lived. And if you're not convinced yet, Peter says, you're a people of his own possession. You once weren't a people, but now you're a people. You didn't have mercy, but now you have mercy. Jew and Gentile coming together. And because you are the possession of God, you have tremendous value. God can take an ordinary thing and give it a lot of value. How many of you are fans of Dukes of Hazard? Do you remember that show? Man, I used to love that. We were only allowed to watch a couple shows, and that was one of them Dukes of Hazard. Do you know 
uh, that when the, the General Lee, that 1969 Charger from the Dukes of Hazard, did you know that that car, owned by the actor John Schneider, sold for $9.9 million on eBay in 2007? And the doors didn't even work. They had to crawl through the windows to get in and out of that thing. That was an ordinary piece of metal, a car. You know what gave it value? Because of who it was owned by. You are an ordinary person. You're owned by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You have a lot of value. Peter says, don't forget that. Don't forget that. You're loved. You're wanted. You're valued. You're treasured. You're chosen and precious in his sight. Okay, so what are we supposed to do then uh, when we face persecution? I'm loved, I'm chosen, I'm I'm a royal priesthood, I'm a chosen nation, I'm all these things. What am I supposed to do when I face persecution? Do I withdraw from society? Form my own commune? That's not going to work. Do I, in the words of every major politician, fight like hell? That's not going to work. What do I do? Verse 9 tells us what to do. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's, your, that's what you're to do. You're to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. Too, too often, after experiencing salvation, Christians resort to either silence or some self-congratulatory pride. Peter's saying, neither of those is going to work. When you're saved by Christ, he says, your work now is to continue to proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you out of that darkness into light. In other words, you're supposed to tell the world what God did for you in the gospel, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You just keep talking about Jesus. You just keep going about Jesus. And you live that out now in a real-time love for God and for other people. So in the face of persecution, don't go silent. And don't go out there with some self-congratulatory pride as some thinking somehow you're better than that unbeliever over there. No, you're not. God just chose to show you mercy. You are just as guilty as him. So in humility, stand strong for this God who so graciously redeemed you. Continue to proclaim his excellencies even as the fiery darts of persecution hit you from every side and raise your eyes so that you don't suffer from eternity amnesia. You're looking out there. One day you will not be ashamed. One day the honor is yours. It is awaiting for you. Stand strong. Let's stand now and pray. God, we need your help. It would be easier to run and hide and 
just do our own thing. It would be easier to attack and spout off on Facebook and Twitter and give our opinions. That would be easier. But the more difficult and right thing to do is to continue proclaiming your excellencies, talking about you, what you've saved us from, how much you've loved us, how much you've graciously redeemed us from, and take that news of hope and joy and love into a world that desperately needs it. Father, help us to be fearless in the face of persecution because we know that even that persecution is controlled by you. It can only go so far. Satan could only go so far with Job. He can only go so far with us. Help us to stand in awe of who you are, to fix our eyes on what's to come, and to boldly speak your truth in love to those that we come in contact with. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.